This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I am so excited about today's episode because we have Zonda Urban on the program. It's uh, Michael Ferreira and John Benest. These guys, uh, formerly Urban Analytics, they are basically providing real estate intelligence to the industry. And again, to us today on the show. (laughs) To us, past guests, fan favorites, both John and Michael. Michael's hot off his State of the Union addressed to UDI. Right. These guys are active in Vancouver, Alberta, Toronto now. Yeah. This is just a great conversation with so many takeaways. And I feel like these guys are really well situated in part because they have a rents department. They have right. a, they're, they're really on the ball with inflation and what's happening in the building community and on market trends, both pre-sale and resale. Just great having them in the studio. They were in Kokomo Studios and it was a it was a fun time. It was a beautiful day outside as well. So it made uh, Kokomo Studios that much uh, more Kokomo. And uh, it was a great day hanging out with them. They took a couple hours from their day to be down here. So yeah, we appreciate it's a, it. It's a long one, but rich. Yes, exactly. And uh, Matt, the only other thing I wanted to say about that is rent related. I think we've talked about rents now for, you know, the past three to six months about just the upward pressure on rents. But man, is it possible we've been understating how crazy rents have changed in the city? I feel like some of the recent rents have illustrated that I don't have my finger on the pulse because I haven't checked in for the last like three weeks. Right. It's like, oh, wait, that's yesterday's rent. So multiple, multiple offers on many of the rental listings out there, people fighting tooth and nail to get rentals in the city. Rents are driving up. We've heard anecdotally about like bachelor suites downtown renting for like 2,400 bucks. It seems like uh, unfurnished, of course. Yeah, anecdotally, this from a client who's decided to buy because she's just sick of competing a couple hundred bucks in the last month, month and a half rents have just shot up downtown. So we projected that on this program about a year ago or so we've had a few people talk about how typically rents are go up in inflationary periods and there's going to be upward pressure on, on rents. We're seeing it now. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's very much, very much happening. And it's happening. I feel like did Michael Ferreira predict that rents were going to go up in the city? I think, uh, Oh, last time he was on? I think last time he was on, I think that's a conversation. I'm going to have to go back and check that out, but I'm pretty sure we had that conversation based on his last UDI talk. Interesting. And I, I don't You remember. can't remember what you ate for breakfast. But I was going to say, yeah, I don't remember anything about that conversation. <laughs> I just remember it's always great to have him on the show. Right. But Adam, before we get to Michael and John, you're basically gone for the next 
God knows how long. My wife's six in labor. Six days, as six we weeks. Your, your wife's in labor. Yeah. Someone else is doing Lamaze uh, <laughs> with my wife right now at the hospital. But no, I actually, my wife has been in labor for a few days now. I don't you know do. Is, your voice sounds a little tired. You I, look fantastic, I, but your voice sounds tired. I haven't really slept. So what? how do I put this without giving away too much information? My wife has been contracting now for about six days with uh, no baby. So it's been a... It's been a good week. It's been an interesting <laughs> week. Uh, we are uh, heading back to the hospital, I think, at some point today. But I broke away to do this intro and outro because it might be the last one I do for, for two weeks here. So we might have Melissa Moretti from our team filling in. Right. But uh, yeah. You're, t- you're taking paternal leave for two weeks. Is that what I understand? Possibly as, as much as two weeks. But uh, <laughs> we're, we're, still, we're still deciding. And uh, I don't know when this baby's coming, but uh, hopefully in the next 48 hours. Well, this is all exciting stuff. So maybe we'll cut to uh, our very exciting talk with Michael Ferreira and John Banest from Zonda Urban. Yeah. And, and maybe and yeah. the baby will be here by the time we finish. Right. And I better get home because my wife thinks I'm in the washroom. <laughs> Enjoy. Enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Mark on building for life. All right, so we're here with Michael Ferreira, Principal of Advisory, and John Benest, VP of Product Development at Zonda Urban. How are you both doing? We're fantastic. Great. Yeah, it's great to have you guys back in the studio. It's been a while. I feel like it might have been pre-COVID. Uh, since we've seen you, I think. Oh, we've done we did a, one since. Okay, correct. I was thinking of literally the last time you guys were in studio. Yeah, yeah, right. And we were in the former studio last time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should say you guys away. look great. You've oh, been working out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I told you that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those compliments that I'm like, oh yeah. No, no that's the owner like, of Spartacus, Spartacus <laughs> Gym. Gym. He's been, he's been roasting. You your field. No, I, I'm. I'm, I'm being completely sincere. You guys look great. Well, COVID, I, I did the COVID-15 pretty aggressively. I think more like 25. Uh, I, I gained a lot of COVID weight. So I think I'm back to fight weight. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. It took yeah. a while. It's been a couple months of hard work. You're but... not alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had a lot of company. Right. right. <laughs> well, maybe uh, for the folks out there who haven't heard you on the show before, can 
you guys tell us a little bit about Zonda and a little bit about yourselves? Sure. John and I were former owners of, uh, co-owners of Urban Analytics. A little over a year ago, we were purchased by a firm out of the U.S., the largest data provider for single-family home data in the United States called Zonda. They've since rebranded us Zonda Urban. They liked uh, the urban platform that we have here in Canada and, and saw an opportunity to grow us across the rest of Canada and then into the U.S. as well. So my name is Michael Ferreira, in case anybody missed that. And uh, John and I have stuck around with the company and helping it grow. We're, in fact, next week heading to Toronto to uh, to launch our, officially launch our, our multifamily data product in uh, in the Toronto market. So... Fantastic. Oh. And John? Yep. Well said, Michael. I, I don't <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yep. But John, you are moving into a, all this success has led you to move into a 400 square foot studio. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So my wife and I are moving into a 400 square foot studio. <laughs> he's, uh, he's into the minimalist lifestyle. <laughs> due to renovation. Yeah. Due to, due to renovation. So. And how long do you think the reno is going to take? Because we, before we went on air, you're renovating a, a property right now. You're moving into a smaller space. Are you like six months, a year? Do you know how long it's going to take? Six months is what we are being told. So, right. Yeah. So we have the, in these reno cases, we have the option of, you can stay in your place. It might be a year, double the price, or you can move out six months. So those are the kind of choices you're right. you're you're given, and, and this, you're making this, the right one. So yeah. this, but the the studio is a new construction completion. So this is actually working out perfectly in terms of timelines. Correct. Yeah, it was previously a, an investment, either to rent or to resell. I feel like we talked about it on yep. the show maybe before, but right. anyway. Yep. I think it was when we were talking about where were the good locations to potentially invest in. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking three years ago, I'm going to need this space for a renovation. So this is where I need to buy. So <laughs> East Vancouver Studios. <laughs> Still a good place to invest. Yeah. 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 We'll get to it. We'll get to it. So maybe as a, as a, as an opening question, I know you guys just did a presentation at UDI. I'm just curious What's the mood, and uh, we'll timestamp this right at the end of May, what's the mood <laughs> in the development community right now? Hmm. Tenuous. It's, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure you've heard this from, from other guests, the you know, biggest concern right now, I think, for the industry is costs mm-hmm. and the uncertainty around costs and where they're going and, and how that affects decisions that they're making, whether it's you know purchasing a piece of property now or committing whether to launch a project, you know they don't know you know costs are what they are today. What could they be six months from now? So so they're having to build a, a contingency, and and I guess the biggest question is how big of a contingency should they be building into that uh, into that pro forma? Interesting. So the concern more is about how much it's going to cost to build as opposed to where the market's headed, which I think a lot of people would be thinking. Yeah. I I mean, at, at the event last week, I was sitting next to uh, one of our clients, a developer client, and he said, you know, right now we're pricing approach is needs-based versus market-based. So they're, you know, coming to market with a project and they're pricing it based on what they need to achieve in order to still have some kind of a margin you know, even after the contingency, assuming that gets eaten up as well. So, you know, that's the approach some are taking, which is, you know, it's a risk because you don't know whether the market's actually going to respond to it and, and whether the market is there for that needs-based pricing. 
Does that, uh, I mean, I, I, that concerns me in the sense that new construction, it seems like prices will just go up hearing that. And it seems that consumers will have a decision to make if they want to buy new construction, because obviously the projects that are going to move forward are only going to move forward if they can make sense of the pricing. Yeah. Do you want to? Yeah, correct. You know, and just to add to Michael's point about where the market's at and where the mood is with the development community, it's it's almost as if we have different moods depending on which developer you talk to. You know, from the cost perspective that Michael was referring to, you know, if you looked at a handful of projects, um, say a townhome developer in, in the Burbs, you know, one of the tactics they would use is, hey, instead of releasing all of our inventory to the market, construction costs are rising so quickly, let's rather release it in a slow format. So, you know, five units at a time. This is kind of an activity that we, prior to this, hadn't really seen a whole lot of of in the marketplace. So we would see maybe 20, 30, 40 units being released at a time, not two or five unit blocks being released. And they were increasing prices on every block. And it was more so, hey, we need to make sure that we make a profit with each block. So that was one camp of developers. The other camp is, hey, we don't know where the market's at. It could be potentially we don't know if it's going to continue to rise or go lower. So let's let's get out as much product as possible to the market now while the market's still very active. So we've seen some developers actually accelerate their project launches in the springtime that they were previously thinking about maybe launching in the fall, winter, or even next year. Right. So that's one. And then, you know, the other is just the final stamp is just, you know, some developers are just potentially looking to, you know, simmer down and not release their projects if your point, you know, if the costs go up and, and the prices maybe don't work. So those are kind of the three scenarios that we're seeing all at once in the market. Does this favor the big players in the, in the market? And, and will this just, I would think that small to medium sized developers are going to have a tough go at it in the coming months and, and potentially years. Whereas, you know, the household names are going to get even more market share, I would expect. Yeah, or at least until there's more certainty. Yeah, okay. yeah, that that sort of small to to mid-sized developer, you know, gets more squeezed. You know, that larger, well-capitalized developer, the banks love them, right? Because they're they've stuck with them through thick and thin and and they're going to continue to to stick with them and they know that there's enough capital there that they can get through a project where they maybe run into some roadblocks or or challenges. Whereas that medium to small-sized developer they're getting squeezed by lenders asking potentially for some more equity if the cost estimates come in higher than what they had initially anticipated. And so those are the guys that are really going to be challenged. There's, there's, I'm sure some companies that have bought land in the last year to 18 months, you know, close to the peak of the land market that they're looking at the numbers now, the costing estimates that are coming in and they're already underwater especially for some of the rental projects that uh, where they require uh, an affordable rental component. You know, if that land was purchased in the last 12 to 18 months, it's, it's going to be challenging for those guys to make the numbers work. And, and do the supply chain issues affect everybody equally or is there an advantage there as well for the larger players? I think some of the larger players and even construction companies, I was, I was chatting with some contractors, some of the bigger GCs, in the market leading up to the UDI thing last week. And they were, you know, they're trying to, uh, steel is obviously a, one of the bigger components that has really increased in price. Some people are saying up to 50% increases in in the cost of steel. And, you know, they're looking at at the futures market to see if they can, you know, get ahead of the curve and, and see if they can 
you know, purchase enough future supply of steel to keep their their numbers down. So, so you know, if you're a smaller GC or a smaller developer, there's no way you can do that. So, so for sure, the the larger developers can uh, can take advantage of that. Yeah, buying in advance and storing storing things. Yeah. Right. Uh, we had on the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast not long ago, somebody um, from Streetside, the Falco Homes. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize how many, the Rancho and all the all the kind of subsidiary companies they have. But uh, presumably a company like that in these times, you know, has a, a leg up when they have kind of their own sourcing ability. Yeah, for sure. And, and especially, you know, they're active in the prairies. And, right. you know, there's a lot of space <laughs> to, to store, store right? Yeah, of course. So. <laughs> you know, I'm just thinking about one thing we've been talking about a lot, and I've been thinking about a lot, is just the ability for the market to actually produce the level of housing Vancouver actually needs, and how in slowdowns there's kind of pullbacks in in housing starts. Right? In a case where, say, a rental project's underwater already, what what is the, does that actually look like? Do they put like presumably if it's strata, you might shelve the project or not release, not go to market until there's better days. For rental, is it just like cut your losses full speed ahead or does that housing actually get produced? You know, the benefit of being a Vancouver landlord or, or landowner is that, you know, from the people or the clients that we've worked with over time where they've been purchasing or acquiring properties with low margins or, or potentially negative margins is you know, they've had the benefit of time, the ability to sit on properties for five, 10 plus years. And because the land market in Vancouver has always been increasing, they've always been kind of saved by that. I think if you're in a different market where it's not guaranteed that land values are going to go up over time, then you're in more of a trouble kind of situation. But that's pretty much what we've, you know, observed over the past 10 years with those scenarios. They just hold on to their properties and, you know, with migration and, and rents going up, um, their numbers look a little bit more favorable each year as mm-hmm. it goes on. So in thinking about that in relation to, Michael, your comment about needs-based pricing, do you think over, you know, the next couple of years, assuming we don't get inflation under control, let's <laughs> just say, does the new construction market drag prices up or does the resale market, you know, it's it's almost like a game of chicken potentially where, mm-hmm. you know, the cost to produce new housing is is getting more expensive. and with interest rates going up, potentially the resale market is very tenuous, right? So does that drag the market up or does the resale market pull the res- the presale market down? Uh, in some cases, it will pull it down. I think, you know, we're seeing in downtown Vancouver, that submarket has not recovered like other submarkets right. of, of Metro Vancouver. And I think that's a function in part to the resale market not coming up as much as as it has in other parts of of the city and and the region. So you know that's kind of a unique situation. I think in a lot of other areas, I would suggest that you know the presale market's kind of been detached from the resale market. It's you know people see that there's something happening in a specific area, whether it's you know North Road, the Burquitlam area, or Surrey City Center. You know they like what what's happening there. So it doesn't really matter what a condo in a, you know, 15 year old tower in, in Surrey city center is selling for. They're just looking at what the future is. And so they're looking at, okay, if I buy this presale today with everything that's going on here, it's likely going to be worth more in four years from now or 10 years from now, whenever they, they decide to dispose of it. Right. 
taking a step back, I feel like we uh, jumped the gun in terms of like some of the pet. We're too excited to ask. Yeah. Pet, questions. Pet, uh, and we're too pet. excited to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> but how is the, how is the presale market right now? Like I, it sounds like we've developers are feeling a little bit tenuous as, as you said, we've talked quite a bit about a general softening in the market, but what are, what are you guys seeing on on the ground? Yeah. Um, you know, a little bit of softening, but you know, always have to take perspective into consideration, you know, in Mike's UDI presentation, Last week, one of the the key charts was let's take a look at 2021 sales and in the pre-sale market. And there were almost as many new homes sold in 2021 as there were in 2018, 2019, and 2020 combined. So, you know, almost three years worth of sales activity in one year in 2021. So naturally, if you're a developer and you're looking at what's going on in the market, you're going to want to push your projects to market as quickly as possible to capture this strong demand and upward price movement. We're starting to see a point where there is some fatigue in the market. There's still activity going on at the right location and right price, but you're not necessarily seeing a project sell out overnight or over a weekend. You're seeing strong sales activity. And in some cases where some developers or projects are pushing the price barrier, you're finally starting to see some pushback or resistance from the buyers out there saying, hey, this is a little bit too expensive for this location and product, and you're starting to see that happening in the market. So which we would define as a more healthier market. If projects are selling out overnight or over a weekend, then, you know, if this is going to continue for a long period of time, that's that's not a healthy sign in the market. So it's starting to, in our eyes, get more healthy. Yeah, and I would I would just add to that, that what we're seeing right now is a bit of the buyer psychology affecting the market, buyer sentiment or market sentiment. So, you know, and it's it's kind of coming at them from all fronts. So you've got talk of, you know, the interest rates have already gone up 75 basis points, expecting another 50 basis point rise in the next day or so. So they hear that and they hear that, you know, the result of that will likely be a slowing of the market. Fewer buyers can get into the market with those higher rates. And then you've got all the talk about the supply chain and costs going up and all the geopolitical issues that are happening around the world. So there's a lot of negative noise. And then you've got the the monthly resale stats that come out that are showing that those are starting, you know, relative to last year, which was an exceptional year. Those stats are starting to show negative on a, on a monthly basis. So as an investor, and, and let's face it, the majority of people who buy into these big pre-sale towers are, are typically investors of some kind. It could right. be an investor buying for their kids to move into at some point. It could be somebody who's looking to flip it you know, shortly after they complete on it, or it's an investor who's looking to hold on to it and add it to the rental market. If you're one of those investors, and ultimately for all these investors, they want that investment to appreciate over time. Sure. If they're thinking, well, let's just wait and see what happens with you know, the interest rates, the geopolitical issues, everything else that's going on. Let's see if if this is going to soften the market and bring prices down or at least flatten them a little bit before I'm not going to jump in now knowing that prices could come down and then, you know, I'm, I'm losing some money there. So, you know, that tends to be the more, you know, nervous investor. I think the smart investor takes a look at everything that's going on and sees as soon as the market flattens, they've got more choice they've probably got a little more leverage to go in and negotiate either better terms or, you know, maybe some additions to the unit. And ultimately, you know, as our market has shown, values do go up over time. So they're probably sitting in a, in a pretty good spot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. 
So maybe uh, changing gears a little bit. So you mentioned the the UDI presentation that you gave, I think last Thursday, Michael. What were some of the key takeaways for our listeners? Um, just how exceptional 2021 was. You know, John's already mentioned the the numbers. There were over 21,000, I think 21,600 new multifamily home sales, so new condo and townhome sales across Metro Vancouver last year. Just a, another sort of tidbit of, of context for that. So in... Q4 of 2021, the total number of units sold was 67 fewer than what we sold in all of 2020. So in one quarter, we sold wow. almost the, the same number of homes that we sold in in an entire year in, in 2020. And, and, you know, let's think back to, you know, 2019 and 2020 and what happened during that time, because I think there's, you know, some relation to what we're seeing happening now for different reasons, obviously. But, you know, the end of 2018, the NDP introduced a bunch of you know, policies that were targeting demand and the demand side of the market. And so, you know, they came right out and said, we're introducing these policies to slow the market and bring prices down. If you're a buyer in the market, whether you're an investor or an end user, would you not wait to see if those measures are actually going to have the impact or the effect that they're intended to have, which is to slow the market and bring prices down? So that's generally what happened in 2019 and 2020. You, You know, as the market slowed, there was also the factor where developers were a little more reluctant to bring product on if they didn't think they were going to be able to achieve the required pre-sale within the designated period of time that they're required to, which got increased to 12 months during COVID. So that's where we also saw fewer sales because there was less product getting released into the market. So, you know, that's kind of what we're seeing now where where buyers are kind of sitting back and saying, let's just see what happens. And and I'm just going to hold off for now and and maybe come back. I don't think it's going to be as as uh, severe as, as 2019 and 2020. And I don't think it'll, it'll be much more short-lived. I think we're going to see the market kind of, you know, soften and flatten out here f- through the end of this year. And, and maybe even prior to that, we'll see some, some people jumping back into the market if we start to see supply chain issues, you know, get relieved a little bit and, uh, and people see the impact of the interest rates not really having you know, a huge effect on the market. Well, it is kind of interesting. One thing we've noticed, you know, is the last interest rate increase. It's like, you know, we often say it's like a, any, any news like that, it's like a punch in the face, puts everybody back on their heels and then a couple of weeks go by and then the market seems to absorb it and understand it. And people still need roofs over their head. And even in the last week or two, it seems like it feels more like business as usual. Like it was a fairly short lived. And I wonder now with this, you know, Clearly, what's going to be another increase of 50 basis points? I think everybody thinks, you know, if that's kind of factored in already. But it, it seems like we're getting busier right now than we were in April, I would say. Is that, though, and I, and I wonder about it because I, you think about these rate holds, right? And you think about people trying to, you know, if I was being strategic, I might keep a rate hold, wait for an interest rate increase see how that plays out and then act, right? Like, I feel like people are, I guess, working with their rate holds, but also kind of, of like, once they see, notice that the, it takes a few weeks of shock and awe to kind of dissipate. And then, and then it's like, okay, well, we still need a home, right? Yeah. yeah the world, the sky hasn't fallen. I don't know if everybody's as strategic as that though. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I John Bonestas, yeah, very strategic three three years, three year vision. You know, I think the big shocker, in addition to kind of what you know Michael's talking about, is just well, not a shocker. You know, we we have continuous demand for housing, be it ownership or rental, 
you know, people moving here, job market still strong. You're always going to have demand for housing. So if you ever see a lull in for sale ownership market, you know, that's just that demand just going to move over to the rental sector. So, you know, that's that was a big kind of, you know, aha that we saw over the past year was, you know, rents, you know, they really went up a lot since COVID, especially. I think, you know, looking at UBC where uh, during COVID, you know, people went home to their parents, uh, international students weren't around. You, you know, we saw there's 20 to 25% vacancy rate at UBC. And if you were anyone who was looking to get into the rental market near that area, it was probably the absolute best time to lock into a rent because you you could see some real substantial drops in the rental market. Fast forward to spring of 2022. And, you know, those rents are up, you know, zero vacancies. And, you know, you're looking at 30 to 40%, you know, increase in rates in some areas relative to, to 2020. So, that's just kind of, you know, if you're a renter and you're continuously seeing rents go up, you know, regardless of, you know, interest rate increases, you're also seeing that on the rental side. Right. So you're kind of being forced amongst two, two hard positions if you're looking to secure housing in the region. And, and I just want to talk about that because last week we did, uh, we talked about the Zonda, the, the rental report. That you've put out, I and, heard that. Yeah, and and I Adam got actually, to the top six. I, I picked uh, the top six regions. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the last one was a struggle. Yeah, <laughs> the last one was a, last one was a struggle. But it, it was it, keeping the the regions. I just don't yeah. know my geography. That yeah. was the yeah. issue. But were you expecting rents to do what they've done? Well, it it it's not a surprise to say I'd be lying if I said I expected downtown to now be renting for five fifty or six bucks a foot, which is incredible. Uh, yeah, and but it it's not surprising given you know, how little inventory we've been adding to the market relative to our population growth. So, you know, you know, I, I think it was mentioned on, uh, on the podcast where you had MLA on and, and they said, you know, the city congratulates themselves when they, when they, you know, approve another 200 unit project. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I think it was Cam who was talking about it. He was absolutely right. We should be, we should be flooding the market with rental units. Like there should be no question as to no limit as to how many rental units the city should be approving right now. You know, the whole Broadway plan and the amendments they've made to that. And and I think it was the the Goodman report stated that uh, that it, it resulted so far in a conservative estimate in the two amendments that they've made to the Broadway plan. They've lost about 30,000 units of rental housing, some of those affordable rental housing units. So, you know, these amendments don't have, you know, don't go without ramifications for the market. So if anybody wants more affordable rental, they should be cheering on and screaming at the city to approve more rentals more quickly mm-hmm. because there's there's no other part of the market. I've said this over and over again. There's no other part of the residential market where you see demand or supply impact rents and prices. You know, there's no investors, there's no speculators in the rental market. So the more you build, the more there is for people to choose from. And so that softens that that demand where you don't have people fighting for for rent. So if you flood the market with rents huh. more so than what people need or more so than what the demand is out there, you know, you're going to we saw the same thing happen in Seattle a few years ago. Now, you know, you can't just flood it and then leave it. You've got to flood it and keep flooding it. It's like a Zamboni. So you <laughs> right. you know, you have to keep it supplied because people are continuing to come here. Um I was I was chatting with somebody from Rennie who who are just started leasing a tower downtown a couple of weeks ago. They had somebody from Microsoft in Seattle call them and say, and this is a project that's now averaging six bucks a foot. It just got released. Somebody from Microsoft called them, said, hey, you know, I'm getting transferred up to Vancouver. Um, I need 
to find somewhere to live. And oh, by the way, I'm bringing 10 of my colleagues with me who all need somewhere to rent. So that's 10 or 11 people. And these, you know, they're making decent coins. So they're, they're able to afford those higher rents. But again, it's just a, an anecdote to support the fact that people are coming here. And yes, six bucks a foot sounds ridiculous to us who aren't used to it. But there are people who, who are coming here and willing to pay those rents. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the Broadway plan because we just had Kit Sauter on, who's at, he's, he's the communications and research at Advantage BC talking about what they have to get right and what it seems like they might inevitably get wrong with the, with the Broadway plan. But it's also curious because I think last time you guys were on, we have talked about Seattle in the past a little bit and about purpose-built rental. Can you elaborate a bit on that, about what, what Seattle seems to be doing right or different in, in terms of purpose-built rental? Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't checked on, on the numbers in the last year or two since COVID, but I know leading up to COVID, and, and I know UDI brought up their chief planner from Seattle to come up and, and chat and do a presentation for UDI here, and, and he was going through the numbers. And, and I, I want to say that they, were, they had completed in one year, in 2018 or 2019, something like 18,000 new rental units that they introduced to the market. And I could be wrong there. It could be 12. It could be 20. But the the point is that they brought on way more rental units than we've ever brought on. I think the average that we've completed, and this is just for the purpose-built rental product that we track, which is anything over 15 units. I know the CMHC numbers are a little higher, but I was looking at it the other day and it was, it was just over 3,000 units a year over the last three years. Well, that's not going to cut it when you know, even just based on immigration, let alone interprovincial migration, you know, we're bringing in, you know, close to 100,000 people a year into, uh, into Metro Vancouver, and that's spread out over BC. But, you know, 90% of the people who move sure. to BC come to, to Metro Vancouver. So, you know, th- those are a lot of bodies. That's a lot of demand. And, and you know, <laughs> I hate to think what prices are going to look like, you know, five years from now, if, if that continues, and we continue to lag behind on, on the supply that's being brought to the market. And just to kind of top onto that, you know, I think looking at some of the rental policies that the city of Vancouver in particular have implemented, a lot of them are in good spirit. You know, the challenges that we get from developers is that is the feasibility of these projects. So, you know, again, good spirited ideas with, we need more family housing. So, you know, there's, let's say a mandate of, we need a minimum X percentage of three bedroom rental units in our projects, or we need to incorporate X percentage of affordable rentals in our projects. And unfortunately, when we run the analysis, a three-bedroom rental on a per-square-foot basis is typically significantly lower than a two-bedroom or a one-bedroom or a studio uh, rental. So, you know, when a client comes to us with a rental advisory request and and says, you know, we need to do this amount of three beds, well, it's very challenging to to justify um, those rents because when you're looking at a three-bedroom, 1,100 square feet, you know, to match a similar rent of a, a studio or a one bedroom rental, you're talking $3,000, $4,000 a month in rent. And there really isn't as much of a market for that here. Right. So ultimately what you're doing is you're devaluing the land and you're going back to the single family homeowners. If it's a, say an assembly where these rental zones are and you're saying to them, well, you could sell your home as a single family home to another single family homeowner for, you know, say two and a half million dollars. But in order to make this rental work, you need to sell it to to developer for two million. So right. if you're a single family homeowner, would you would you sell it to a rental developer? Because you know that's unfortunately what happens. The more policies you layer on these rental projects, 
the lower the land um, is going to be needed to to make it work. Right. right. And and the assumption always with an assembly is there's a premium because you're assembling, right? So it's actually the opposite is is the case. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. And and there's really very little recognition f- from whether it's planners or or you know, council, mayor and councils of the impact of these policies on the viability, as John says, of of these projects. So, okay, if if you want us to do that, then at least give us a concession on on the fees that we're having to pay. Like let's maybe waive the CACs on this rental development if you want us to put in, you know, that proportion of units that are affordable or that are family and, and affordable for families to rent. So, so that's that, you know, there's a disconnect there between, you know, the industry and, and municipalities. This makes me think of the Northeast false Creek plan specifically and, and unlocking all that potential for, for housing and what seems to be a stalemate between uh, the development community and, and the city of Vancouver over essentially CACs from, from what, seems to be the, what people are talking about. Yeah. I, I don't know all the inside details, but it seems crazy that we are delaying plans and projects over things that are just not viable, right? Yeah. When we when we need housing so desperately. Yeah. And I, I, you know, when it comes to the city of Vancouver and, and their budgeting process, you know, I think they really need to look at their spending priorities because clearly they need the the money because they keep, you know, going to the, various sources of it and and developers are are one of the bigger sources of revenues for the city in addition to property taxes and such but uh, you know th- that well is only so deep and and if it doesn't make sense for a developer to go to market whether it's a rental project or a condo project they're not going to go to market with it so right. and the develop and the the city ends up losing in the end so you know there's got to be some recognition there of that and and I you know I made the comment at at uh, UDI last week is you know I really wish between municipalities and even the general public that you see sometimes commenting on on message boards on social media and such you know <laughs> profit is not a, a a dirty word it's a necessity for this industry to operate if developers and all different layers of the industry you know we need to make a profit and you know we rely on the development industry for our revenue but there has to be a profit for it to function Yes, some guys are going to hit, some companies are going to, you know, hit a windfall on a project and, and make, you know, big profits. But it, more often than not, it's, it's, a, it's a very tight margin that, uh, that some of these developers end up uh, getting at the end of a project. Yeah, right? or, or alternatively, they're underwater right now on a rental project, right? Yeah. Like that's the, the game. Yeah, somebody, to, somebody told me a couple of weeks ago that if, if you had budgeted a 15% margin on a project that you launched, call it last summer, and you're under construction now, that margin's probably gone, just based on the the increase in costs that they've seen since uh, since they've started construction. So, you know, that's they're just surviving right now. Um, kind of two questions, but one is maybe more specific to the the Broadway plan, just thinking about all the requirements of that potential housing. Um, you know, there's been a lot of, of talk about speculation. I feel like Tom Davidoff is always talking about, you know, the windfall profits of the single family homeowners, but what you're saying, John, is potentially there won't be a uh, kind of crazy speculation in those blocks around the Broadway corridor. If the numbers are really hard to make, make sense of, right? Like it, we don't, maybe don't have to, I feel like the two issues are apart from neighborhood character and that kind of 
those questions are displacement of current renters, which is is obviously a big concern, and then kind of runaway speculation on the on the land in say the five blocks within. But there's potentially not those issues with how onerous the requirements are. Correct. Yeah. I mean, the the more density that can be put on it, the more opportunities there are for land upside. You know, an example of where we haven't seen a tremendous amount of speculation is the arterial road uh, rental policy for six-story buildings uh, in arterial road. So, you know, just as an example, my parents live in a house on the west side on an arterial arterial road. And, you know, people have been talking about this policy for at least two years now, and not once have they gotten received a knock on the door for any investment activity whatsoever. Right. You know, it's a function, you know, a lot of functions, but one of which is the size of these lots. So, you know, if your standard Vancouver lot is 33 by 122, you know, you need to assemble a lot of them to make it work. So, you know, even this example of a um, arterial rental policy is really only working in large lot scenarios. So, you know, we we do know some developers who have gone in and bought some lands, but They've primarily been significantly larger lot sizes as the only way they can make it work. Interesting. That's why you see, you know, the arterials like Granville, Oak Street, Cami Street, they work there because those lots are so much bigger than than your typical lot in in Kitsilano or some of the other uh, neighborhoods along the Broadway line. Right. Is it as easy as looking at it from a strata versus purpose-built rental uh, scenario? Like, do you, do we have the same complications when we layer policy over strata or is it just, is, is strata just always more profitable in that regard? Well, well with strata, you just get your money out much sooner. So right. with rental, it's, it's a, it's a long-term play unless you've got an institutional buyer who's going to come in and pre-buy that project from you. You're going to, you know, purchase the land, take it through the approvals process, build it, and then sell it to, uh, um, to an institutional REIT or that right. kind of thing. Yeah. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, What's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. 
if you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. You know, I just want to go back to rents a bit because one thing that I, I think, and I don't know exactly what you meant, John, when you said it, we had an aha moment, but I feel like I've kind of had a few aha moments watching rents over over COVID, but over coming out of COVID. And, and now with people, you know, potentially hitting pause on on buying properties and looking for rentals. I just spoke with somebody last night who, you know, she said, well, I'm not sure I want to buy right now, but the rental market is so daunting that it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's just so much easier to actually buy a property, which of course, three months ago is not the case. But what, what, if any, I'm curious to kind of hear the relationship between the two markets, because it seems like the rents or, or if, if at all there is, because if I understand since in the last, say, year to 18 months, we've seen huge increases in, in rental prices, whereas the real estate market was going crazy. Now the real estate market's softening, but the rental market seems to be going crazy. You know, I've heard at least anecdotally of kind of multiple offer situations in the rental market. And then as a kind of final, just thinking out loud here, the downtown market, Michael, as you mentioned, like we're kind of at 2017 prices downtown, but the rents are going up. So cap rates are actually improving downtown. And so it's like, it's hard to make sense of the resale. What's the exact relationship? But I don't know if you guys have thoughts on that at all. I would say that the rental market is mainly a function of the job market here and immigration are the kind of core drivers of the rental market. Whereas there are other factors which are influencing the the resale market as well too, beyond just the job situation here. So interest rates being one of them. So, you know, as it relates to somebody looking for a rental development to live in or rental housing to live in, I don't know if interest rates going up really impacts that renter. But on the flip side, if you're looking to buy, it would definitely discourage you from wanting to buy. So I do think that, you know, any interest rate increase would, you know, maybe sway somebody who's on the fence towards rental. And I just don't see a, um, a scenario where rental demand is going to go away in the next, you know, three to five years. You know, I think going back to that, aha, it's, you know, it really was a proof that the rental market was really temporarily, you know, subdued, but it was purely a function of the situation, which is COVID, which was right. tons of rental demand out there ended up, you know, with young students and young workers moving back home with their parents and international renters uh, just not showing up here. So. Once you get that back into into the equation, um, it really shows how strong the rental market is in Vancouver here. So, and the foreign buyers ban is just going to put more pressure on that, right? Because if you are moving here and you can't buy, you're going to rent. You're going to rent, right? So, and presumably, and the interest rates, as you kind of implied as well, if you're not, if you can buy but you're you don't want to, you're putting more pressure on the rental market as well. Yeah, I'm just I'm one sure more for, for some people, you know, with the interest rates, if they're looking to buy. It's like, okay, I can't afford to live in Metrotown anymore. Um, I can't afford to buy in Metrotown anymore because of the interest rates. So my option is I, you know, move to Surrey or further out and have a longer commute in, or I rent closer to where I work. And, you know, that's so, and I think, you know, despite COVID and everything and, and the remote work environment that some companies are adopting, 
and are open to, you know, people are still going into the office from time to time. So mm-hmm. that question becomes, do I want to spend an hour to an hour and a half each way in my car every day? Or do I want to live closer to where I work and, and, you know, have a lifestyle? You know, I want to go back to one thing you said, Michael, about the rental market that really struck me. And, and it's that, you know, there's no, there's no speculation in the rental market. There's no, you know, you're not renting two or three or four units. You're not renting something and leaving it vacant, right? Like all the potential critiques you hear around our housing market and how it's broken um, don't exist in the rental market. And yet we're in a situation where it's, it's kind of a more pure supply and demand crisis, but it's so clear and there's, there's no way to argue with, there's just way more demand than we have supply. And that leads to situations where many Vancouverites are, are living very tenuously and, and are really scared about losing the, the roof over their head or having to find uh, another home. And, and even high net individuals as well that, that can afford rent and just finding product, right? Just because yeah. it's just such limited supply. Yeah. And we were just talking about how high some of the rents have gotten in some parts of Metro Vancouver and those buildings are getting leased up. So it's not a function of people not being able to afford that rent. I think the bigger concern is that people can't find product to rent. And I think that's causing a, a bigger, you know, societal issue within Metro Vancouver where, you know, we're starting to see people leave the region. I mean, you know, you can blame COVID and the fact that they can work remotely, but, you know, the fact that they can work remotely and, you know, be able to find housing in another market is, is leading some people to actually leave the market. And these are people that we actually need to retain here right? because they could be part of the labor pool that we have for, for building the homes in the market. Like I was again, chatting with uh, some GCs uh, a couple of weeks ago and they're seeing some of their, you know, site supers who are, are leaving the region and, and they were already, they had moved out to Chilliwack, but driving in to a site in, you know, closer to the core of, of Vancouver and, you know, they've just had enough and I'm moving to Vancouver Island or I'm moving to the Okanagan and, you know, better lifestyle for my family. You know, I'm closer to home. The markets in both of those regions are booming as well. So there's no problem getting work for them. Right. So, but it's, it's something that I think, you know, across the region, we really need to be concerned with. One of our guests on an episode that's yet to be released made the point about how this is such a systemic problem in terms of how our city operates. And the example given is you think of healthcare workers that have to now commute an hour and a half to work in a hospital and provide care. And you think of the ability to give care is so, is, is so hindered by the fact that, you know, this person had to get you're up too tired. Yeah. You're too <laughs> yeah. tired. Yeah. They had to commute. They had to, but it, it, and then you think about our police officers, you think about ambulance well, well, drivers, you think about everything in our city that is impacted by this. Well, and, and not to, I mean, my wife's a teacher. I mentioned this because we we spoke to Kit Sauter, who I think Adam's referring to here yesterday. And, you know, last night I mentioned that conversation. So three of the people on our staff are moving to the island after this year. My kid's soccer coach, who is a teacher, is is moving to the interior. They're like, there's just, they're like, forget it. We're done. Like, yeah. We're done. And she said the three of her friends that are teachers live in East Vancouver and they're all, they live with the, with this you know, this, uh, sword over their head. What if I have to find a new place? Like I've lived in the same place you know, and these are yep. teachers that are, are well-established. Man, you, 
you're living in a house that's falling down and you're desperately afraid that at some point you're going to be told you have to leave. Yep. It's like a crazy environment to, to live in. Yep. Um, anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's not quantifiable by any data that we have, but I mean, just anecdotally chatting with people, it just seems as though that is the challenge of, of Canada is just that we do relative to the world have a small population and housing supply. So, you know, we're just shy of 40 million people living here, but the demand for people globally to live in Canada is very high. So, you know, when we get 400,000 people a year come to the, you know, all cities throughout Canada, you know, it doesn't seem as though we have the ability to build that housing to accommodate quick enough. You know, I, I don't know if there's any suggestions, be it, you know, are we more accepting of people who can build these houses um, for people who are moving here to to move into? But we're definitely, you know, hearing that anecdotally to your point where, you know, markets like Victoria and Nanaimo, Interior, people who have lived in the Vancouver region are moving out to these locations and people internationally are moving into Vancouver. So mm-hmm you know, just chatting with our colleagues in Ontario as well. Same thing where people are moving outside of Toronto into smaller cities in Ontario, um, still access to a Costco movie theater, all of those basic yeah. big box amenities. You can raise a family, elementary school, hospital, but the affordability is is just better for them at this point. So, you know, we've seen a across Canada, this isn't just a Vancouver problem. You know, people are moving to these smaller cities primarily due to lifestyle for their kids and affordability. We built more houses or sold more houses in the pre-sale market in 2021 or in the first quarter of 2021, basically, than we did in 2020. Where are these houses, where are these sales happening? Like, in the, can, can we break it down in terms of like where are the building's happening? Um, yeah, I mean, your your urban cores of, you know, the region are, are where the majority of this is happening. So, you know, transit-oriented Locations, Metro Town, Brentwood, Burquitlam, Surrey City Center, Richmond, the Canby Corridor has started to come back to life again. Right. So so that's where the majority of, of the growth has been happening and where the, the demand has been, which makes sense. I mean, you know, if you're an investor, people are going to want to be near a, a SkyTrain station or Canada Line station. So, right. So I feel I feel like this conversation's maybe taken a little bit of a depressing turn, <laughs> but I I feel like there's some silver linings here potentially. One with the fact that the resale market has softened to some extent. I also personally feel like there's opportunities to harness the development community in a way to create housing, you know, which seems obvious to a lot of people. We don't want John Horgan building it. And uh, you know, can we can we maybe t- touch on on some of the maybe the silver linings out there? Um, you know, I think with this kind of talk around lack of affordable housing, tenuous situations as it relates to rentals, this is, you know, what, at least what I've been observing is that this is starting to find its way down to the sentiment amongst the younger population here in Canada and in Vancouver. Whereas traditionally over the years, you would see a lot of nimbyist, you know, sentiment. We don't want this. We don't want that. Whereas, you know, if you were to look at social media forums nowadays, there's a big uh, younger population who's for lack of a better phrase, fighting back against this and is really standing up for housing and being an advocate for more supply. And this is a change that I've personally seen over the past five years, which hopefully can lead to more housing. I was going to say, this might be the darkest before the dawn moment where it kind of breaks the the kind of deadlock that we've been in for a long time with housing, right? That's because it does feel different. It feels like the advocacy is ramped up. I think you're right. And then, but it feels like we've now gotten to a point 
you know, you, you used to have the letters occasionally, I'm leaving Vancouver, you know, and then three months would go by and there'd be another letter. And, but it seemed sort of performative more than now. Now it seems like we're in this like legitimate, like something's got to give and we have to start building more housing. Yeah. No. And I, and I think people are feeling it within their own network now, mm-hmm. right? Like they know people who it's affecting directly and they're making now decisions to, to leave the region, as we said. But, you know, to John's point about, you know, the conversation uh, or the tone of the conversation around housing starting to change, I think we have a real opportunity this year with municipal elections coming up. You know, four years ago, a lot of municipalities after, you know, what we came out of in 2016, 2017 with the frenzy that we saw in the market back then, there was a real sort of anti-development you know, tone across the city with the with electorates. And there was a lot of slow growth or low growth councils that were elected. I live in the district of North End. I'm I'm living it. Yeah. And whereas I think that tide is starting to change. And I think people actually experiencing the crisis personally, whether it's themselves or friends of theirs, is is causing them to now realize, no, this this is actually a serious issue and we need to address it. We need to get our leaders to address it. So I see a real opportunity this fall. Like if if anybody cares about this issue, they should make sure they're talking to their friends, asking the whoever is running for council and the and the provincial government may come in and, and force, you know, municipalities to to do their thing on the supply side anyway. But, you know, let's elect some some councillors who also recognize the crisis that we're in that aren't just concerned about their little single family fiefdom that they might have in the Blue Ridge neighborhood of the district of North Van. Let's, you know, elect some people who understand and and are thinking longer term, not just what's happening in the market today. Like that's what we have to be thinking about the growth in the population that we have coming down the road, not just what we have today. How are we going to supply housing? You know, we're having trouble supplying housing for the people that are coming here today. What about the other, you know, there's 450,000 on average per year expected in Canada over the next three years, let alone beyond that. So let's think longer term, how are we going to supply that housing? Let's start with the leadership that influences, you know, how much housing we're allowed to build. And that's, you know, starts at the municipal level and then goes to the provincial level. But first and foremost, and and soonest on the horizon is municipalities. So let's elect those leaders that are going to make that happen for us. I agree a hundred percent, but I, it's switching gears a little bit. I know that, that you both are, are very active in the Alberta market and it sounds like Ontario now as well, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, can we talk about Alberta? Because Alberta seems to be like a hot button issue right now, just, just around the market. There's been a lot of market activity and, and it seems like Calgary and Edmonton both seem to be hot housing markets. Can you talk about what you're seeing in, in your analytics in, uh, in, in those markets? Not to mention better hockey teams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, you know, we sometimes, you know, some black humor in the office. We talk about our timing is impeccable. Sometimes we went into Calgary in 2014, just as the, the oil market slumped. And uh, we thought, well, we're here now. Let's, you know, let's uh, see. Grind it, it can't can't yeah. last that long. So <laughs> here we are six years later and it's finally coming back. So no, the, the Alberta market has, has rebounded for sure. It was another, you know, COVID winner to an extent starting, you know, on the single family side, housing is so affordable there. You know, the one silver lining or not one, but one of the silver linings of the extended slump in the energy sector was the fact that they were actually forced to to really work on 
diversifying the economy there. So they have, and you know, the tech sector has been growing. The movie industry there is booming health sciences, you know, that sector of the economy is moving. Alternative energy sector is, is, uh, is really coming alive. So it's, I think the number just in the first quarter of this year was something like $460 billion in investment in, in Alberta, which is amazing when you, when you think of, you know, investment coming from outside the province. So the job market is really starting to boom. There's more and more people moving there. So it's obviously creating more, more demand for, for real estate. You know, the, Condo market there was, you know, dead to nails for the longest time uh, from, you know, 2015 to 2017. But, you know, since COVID, we've started to see that start to rebound as well. And, and you know, for the end user local buyer, it's been primarily single family townhome. The, the condo market's been driven primarily from investors. Foreign investors from Ontario. Correct. <laughs> NBC. NBC. No, there's there's uh, brokers, you know, who are advertising projects specifically to the Ontario market with, you know, rental packages, with rental guarantee packages already put together. So you've got a, a return already figured out when uh, when you buy these these units. So we, we've seen that. Yeah. 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 They, they make it very appealing. So uh and and I'm just selfishly uh, asking for investors of ours that uh, are looking. Would you would you go Calgary or would you go Edmonton if you were moving into that market? Yeah, Edmonton is probably more affordable than Calgary. So if you're looking for maybe a higher cash flow, you would probably look to Edmonton. But if you're looking at maybe more of a potential long term appreciation play, probably Calgary. Can we all agree that Calgary is the nicer city? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say so. And, and, I mean, I was in Edmonton a couple of weeks ago for the real estate forum there and uh, for the apartment investment conference. And, it, you know, I mean, the whole, I know some people like the the remote work thing. And, and my biggest thing for, you know, at least having a hybrid model where you've got people in the office part of the time is we need to support our downtowns. We need to support our employment centers. And Edmonton is a great example of that where I walk through downtown and, you know, I drive through the downtown east side every day on my way into the office. Walking through downtown Edmonton, I was afraid in a couple of places. I, I quickened my pace, right? And, and it's a function of, you know, you don't have as many eyes on the streets. So you have, they do have a homeless issue there. And, you know, if I was homeless in Edmonton, given the climate there during the wintertime, I'd probably be pretty angry too and pretty miserable. So, but, it, you know, it, if you have more people going into the office, more eyes on the street, it's, it's going to have, uh, you know, it's going to feel better in that area. So, you know, the other function, I think, you know, Calgary has a more concentrated downtown where, you know, most of the office is located within a few block radius, whereas Edmonton seems to feel a little bit more spread out. So from a planning perspective, I think Calgary's done a better job over time. In terms of the populations, is is this impression right that there's a, a much younger population in Calgary? Like it seems like the the salaries in Calgary are very high and the population's very young. It seems like those two things are pretty exciting. It feels that way. Yeah. Um, just being out there. I mean, I remember one of my first market tours out there when I think it was around 2008, working for a developer, just studying the Calgary market. And we went to a suburb called Airdrie, which is just north of Calgary. And there's um, there a softball, a kid's softball tournament going on. And I was, you know, 20 years old or 22, 23 years old at the time. And 
and all the parents were uh, were younger than me, and I had no, you know, yeah. so <laughs> I was shocked, right? So I just think that yeah, you're quick to do things faster in Calgary and more affordable locations. Everyone has a kid young, you know, younger, yeah, buy a house younger, all that sort of thing. So that was kind of the big kind of. Yeah. yeah. Well, most of my friends in yeah. Winnipeg are grandparents. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Whereas Vancouver, you're more likely to see, you know, people with gray hairs with, you know, newborns oh, yeah. and such, right? So yeah. Yeah. a little bit different kind of demographic vibe to Vancouver relative to these other cities like Edmonton, Calgary. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and Edmonton is, you know, it's, it's the oil patch and government. So, right. you know, it, it feels a little more blue collar because uh, you do see people coming from the oil patch who are living in Edmonton. And then you've obviously got, that's the, where their legis, provincial legislator right. le, legislature is. So you're going to have that government worker element as well. So, you know, I kind of liken it to, um, I'm from Portugal. So you have the two biggest cities there are Porto and Lisbon and the joke or, you know, what they, how they describe each city is Porto is where they make the money and Lisbon is where they spend it. So uh, it's kind of the same where Lisbon's more refined, Porto is more blue collar, where, you know, you have a lot more of the manufacturing going on. And, uh, and, and so it's, it's kind of like in Edmonton and Calgary in that way, where you've got the oil patch that, you know, makes a lot of the money and then Calgary decides how they're going to spend it. Yeah. <laughs> usually, usually we put the Vancouver lens on other cities. I've never heard the Portugal lens. Wow. <laughs> it's like, where's the Yale town of Lisbon? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But yeah, just in all, all fairness, I, you know, I do get the appeal of these cities. You know, you go to Edmonton, you can look for, to shop for a new single family home and suburban location for 350 to $450,000, which, you know, largely affordable to most working couples. Right. Um, pretty amazing if you place the highest value on a, owning a single family home. These are where the places where you're going to want to look, especially Edmonton. Right, right, right. Yeah. right. And, and the energy there is palpable. Like it's like, I love going and, and visiting our team in, in Calgary because it's, you just, you walk through, COVID's been a little bit different, but, but in typical times you walk through downtown and there's just, there's this really great positive energy there that, uh, you know, I don't know if it's a function of the affordability where people are just, just happy. They have more disposable <laughs> income to spend on, on stuff other than their, than their home. But, you know, I, I think part of it is just, you know, societal in, in Alberta, it's just a more can do type of attitude and people just get down to it and, and figure it out. So I have two questions before, before we go. One, you're an investor looking to purchase a property Let's just give it a million dollars as the, so you can buy in Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, or anywhere else in the, for the balance of 2022, where's the best place to invest right now? Uh, where Zonda is active and you guys have a <laughs> pulse on the market. I'm, I'm still going to say Vancouver, I, you know, from an appreciation perspective. Metro Vancouver? Metro Vancouver. Well, yeah, no, Metro Vancouver and I'll... I, I've been telling a few people this. I think one of the sleeper neighborhoods or submarkets of the region is Coquitlam Center. I think uh, there's been very little development happening there over right. the past few years. But if you think about it, you've got the Evergreen Line that terminates there. You've got the West Coast Express that comes through there. You've got you know good commuter access with Lougheed Highway, uh, the Barnett Highway. And you've got a lot of development that's currently in the planning process that's going to come. Morgard has Coquitlam Center Mall that they're, you know, going to redevelop with a bunch of rentals around it. There's some significant condo developments being planned right now. 
around the core of, of Coquitlam Center. So I, I think it's been one of those sleeper markets where not a lot has been happening. So people tend to forget about it. But I think if you're looking for, you know, a resale opportunity where you want to purchase, you know, an older condo and just keep it and rent it out or a couple of them with a million dollars, maybe it's a, a couple of one bedroom units you can, you can get in there. I think it's, it's one of those markets that, uh, that I think is, is going to see its day in the next little while. Okay. That's great. Center. That is, that's the first time that's been, uh, uh, mentioned on the show too. So that's good. John. And that's free to your listeners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you want any more though, you got to pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think last time on the show, I, I said Ladner as a, as a sleeper neighborhood. And I think that's gone up in value quite a bit, uh, since that time. So I think shifting gears going to a different location, I'm going to say at this moment, Port Moody. I feel like uh, the Fraser Valley and locations, you know, which were previously perceived as inferior locations to, say, Port Moody, have come up quite a bit to the point where in order to buy a condo in, say, Fleetwood or Langley, you're paying almost the same price as you would in Port Moody. You know, whereas if you were to rewind four years ago, you'd have to pay a massive premium right. to live in Port Moody relative to, say, Langley or, you know, Fleetwood or that sort of spot. So relative to what's going on, I'd say Port Moody within the Vancouver framework is a good value. That's, you know what, I, I helped a client purchase a house in Port Moody late last year and he was the one who came to me. He's like, this doesn't make sense. He was looking at all these neighborhoods and yeah, he's done, he's done massively well in it. But I think that's, that's, uh, that's really interesting. And we know Michael would still buy Vancouver. John, is that the case with you? So Port Moody in Vancouver, but if you're buy, if you could buy an investment property anywhere, million bucks. Is it Vancouver? Right now it would be. I just, I've had, you know, maybe it's a personal thing. I've had way more success in Vancouver than any other location. So it's just stick with the winning formula. Right. Yeah. But like truly yeah. though, I, I feel like the problem with us is potentially all of us will speak for everyone is that framework, right? Like you have the Vancouver mentality. It's very hard to necessarily know if it translates. Well, and it uh, hasn't let us down and hasn't let thousands of investors down for, you know, decades. So I, I think that, you know, we've let's, let's face it. This year is not the first year that Vancouver's had a housing crisis. If you were to kind of look at newspaper articles over the past 30 plus years, you would see a, the word words, housing crisis almost on every year. So, you know, if you relay that into an investment opportunity, it's hard not to bet against a location where they deem it a housing crisis as it relates to a lack of housing. Right. You're buying into an investment where there's a perpetual lack. You're almost betting on how complicated the problems are that the city faces, right? As opposed to anything. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, if you look at NHS Live, our data platform, Zonda Urban, um, <laughs> and you look at the contemplated numbers across the region, they only keep growing. So the amount of product that we have in planning only keeps growing. And so you look at that and you think, oh my goodness, there's so much product coming onto the market. But the reality is only a very small proportion of that product that's in planning actually makes it to market in any given year. So, you know, thank the municipalities, thank planning departments for, you know, limiting the amount of supply that's on the market because it's it's keeping pressure on on pricing and and has probably contributed more than anything to the uh, 
to the increased values that we see across the region. So, and this brings me back to silver linings and the the fact that, you know, right now things look super negative and we've talked about a lot of challenges that the industry faces today. But I think if you're a buyer, I think it's a great time to to actually start exploring what opportunities are out there. And the biggest reason I say that is because right now you have the luxury of time. You don't have the frenzy that we had in the market last year and maybe even the first month of this year. You have the time to go out and do the research and and you know look at whatever product is is out there and perhaps maybe have some leverage on the negotiating front where you know you can negotiate you know better terms as I said or maybe a, a few more options thrown into the purchase price. But I think the biggest thing is, and I made this comment at uh, my presentation last week, where uh, you know a land broker once said. You know, a, a down housing market doesn't result in lower prices. It just allows you the opportunity to buy. Right. So I think we're in one of those periods right now where you've got a great opportunity to buy. Sound advice. Well, we have this segment called the Five Wire. Five quick questions, uh, light-hearted questions uh, <laughs> to end the show with. Uh, do you guys have time to stick around for that? Absolutely. The Five Wire is brought to you by Scalina Real Estate. Hey. That sounds familiar. Scalina Real Estate is a full-service real estate company serving Vancouver, offering comprehensive tried and tested buyer and seller systems. With over a decade in the top 10% of realtors in the lower mainland and a perfect five-star Google review, Scalina Real Estate can help with all your real estate needs. We also have an extensive network of the best industry professionals and trades right across the country. There's no reason to not get in touch. Head over to scalinarealestate.com to find out more. Okay. All right. Well, question number one, and maybe we'll start with John. One book you'd recommend for all of our listeners? Uh, you've probably got this one a lot, but uh, Sapiens is a really good one. You know uh, what? We were talking about that yesterday, but uh, that wasn't the recommendation, but that is a that is a great book. Yeah. So, I mean, what's interesting about that book is it just shows how time, you know, if you rewind back in time, how slowly change took and how in society, how it's starting to accelerate at a quicker and quicker pace. And super interesting. I recommend it. 100%. And, and Michael? Um, so you might have remembered a couple of years ago, there was a book called Red Notice by Bill Browder, uh, about a hedge fund owner who, who started a hedge fund in Russia and then was basically chased out of the country by Vladimir Putin. So the story continues after he left and he's got a new book out called Freezing Order. And it's, you know, continues on from Red Notice and and uh, continues to tell the story of, of what he's faced even since leaving Russia and how, you know, Putin hasn't kind of let him go unscathed. Oh, wow. Good one for the times. And if you haven't read Red Notice, read that one first because it's, it's, and it puts everything kind of into perspective in terms of what's going on in, in Ukraine and Russia right now as well. So Interesting, interesting. Okay, so this is a, a, a new question. You're on death row. What is your last meal, John? Burger and fries. Burger and fries. Keep it simple. And, and then yep. the second part is, why are you on death row? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. I don't know. My, Boy, Michael? keeping it light here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, there's no vegetarians in an, in in this <laughs> partnership. So, uh, so I'm going for a, a nice tenderloin steak. <laughs> yeah. There's no vegetarians yeah. on death row. <laughs> John, uh, what have you been binge watching lately or your favorite movie? 
Oh, good question. We we haven't been watching anything. I'm just the the sports playoffs. So NBA finals. Yeah, yeah. And the Battle of Alberta has this been? Uh, I I just was talking with a huge Oilers fan about uh, not to go too deep into McDavid, but unbelievable. I don't know how yeah, close you've been generational. watching. Like it's, it's just like I'm not. I haven't watched you know very much. I started watching the playoffs in the second round with yeah. the, the Battle of Alberta. And, and you know, when I watch him, it's... It's like it, he's it, magical. Yeah, you're jaw-dropping. Yeah. Like it's you, you, it, more than any other sport. I don't think there's anybody else out there right now who has the skill and, and talent that he's got. Right, right. Fantastic. So, so what have you been watching? Battle of Alberta? Anything else? Uh, finished Ozark. Right. So I uh, was a big Ozark fan as that, as that was out. So that's probably the biggest one, some other things here and there. I'm looking forward to going to see the new Top Gun. Ah, so. Maverick. Yeah, I'm a, I'm an 80s kid, so. Got to <laughs> <laughs> watch the first one with my son so he figures out what it's all about. Yeah. And we'll, uh, we'll go to the, the new one. Favorite band or music? All music, so country, rap, Everything. Yeah. What about yeah. country rap mashups? That's the music. <laughs> That's the one thing. <laughs> my, my favorite. Thing. Nelly and Florida yeah, Georgia. Yeah. Line. yeah. <laughs> Together. No, and, you know, I don't. I don't have a favorite. All music is is good as long as they're you you put out good music. I don't really care what genre. Right on. All right, Michael. Yeah, kind of the same. I don't really have a favorite. It's kind of the favorite of the moment. Like last year, I was really into the Black Pumas. I thought that's you know, one of the yeah. best albums I've I've heard in years. Um, you know, just started listening to the new Kendrick Lamar, which I think is brilliant. That's a great album. Yeah. And uh, and the new Arcade Fire. So I'm kind of all over the map. And last but not least, uh, something that you've purchased, and, and just since you were on the show last, maybe for something you've purchased for under $1,500 that's had a positive impact on your life. <laughs> well, I just did a reno. So... <laughs> I There's said 1500 not a million. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of some of the components that uh, <laughs> that we bought. A central vacuum system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not a, not a whole lot either. Just uh, everything for the baby. So you know, uh, clip-on soother. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Great. Adam's having very, a baby very soon. Yeah, yeah, so very low cost, but very high value for what you're getting. Fantastic. Take a note, clip-on soother. Yeah. All right. And how can people find out more about what you're doing over at Zonda and sign up to that, uh, that subscription service? Uh, 604-569-3535. Or if you're more inclined to hop on the internet and check our website out. Zondaurban.com. Zondaurban.com. Well, fantastic conversation as always, guys. And thanks so much for your time. Can't wait to be back. Thank you. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Michael Ferreira and John Benest from Zonda Urban. Really enjoyed that conversation, Matt. And in that time of that conversation, my wife has given birth. No, just kidding. <laughs> that hasn't happened yet. But yeah. But what are you doing in the bathroom? Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I saw a great meme the other day about it was like a uh, one of those like viral, like one of those uh, not viral videos. God, am I old? Uh, the videos on Instagram, the Reels. Reels. It Reels. was a reel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole thing was things I do while my husband's in the washroom. And uh, 
was like clean the house, like hike a mountain, like that. And they just kept getting longer. And it was like, I was like, man, that's like the truest thing I've ever seen. And uh, it's crazy that it's like a universal thing as well. <laughs> just, just men hiding in bathrooms all over the city. Uh, anyways, yeah, that was uh, that was a great uh, conversation with those guys. Always a pleasure having Michael Frere and John Benest. I was a little surprised by Michael Frere's music choice. He is, uh, turns out, a, a huge fan of Kendrick Lamar. Right, um, right. Which was, yeah, that's a great album, though. That Honestly, is a great album. Back, yeah, you would not. Album. And I, did he mention Big Shiny Tunes? He did. He mentioned it in the flesh. Yeah. Well, uh, we were talking about the 90s and some much music jokes came up, including Big Shiny Tunes. Right. Which I would like to look at the list of uh, songs. There's a lot of crap on Big Shiny Tunes eh? in the 90s. Like, I'm just thinking like a lot of I probably. Kinda, my thought was almost the entire thing. Well, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but also, but the reason that came up is Zonda had an event. And Sugar Ray. Oh, right. The, the guy headliner. from Sugar Ray. The, wasn't it just the singer? I thought his name was Sugar Ray. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not the band Sugar Ray. Yeah, yeah. But apparently but he, he, he didn't disappoint. But he's the guy. I get a whole bunch of those guys with soul patches confused. Yeah. There's Guy Fieri. There's the guy from Sugar Ray. There's the... Uh, the guy from Limp Biscuit. The guy from Limp Biscuit, <laughs> And uh, they're all kind of 90s icons. There's, I'm trying to think of who else there was. There's the guy from the uh, Smash Mouth. Right. Um, right. They're all kind of could be the same guy, slightly like within about a twenty pound yeah. uh, gap of each other. And I feel like, although I, maybe I'm, that's unfair to Sugar Ray because he's uh, he's probably a bit better looking than the other. I feel well, like he's the better looking of the guys. I, you know what? It's it's very well could be. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, <laughs> but we are going down a strange rabbit hole. We are. Well, nineties <laughs> guys <laughs> with soul patches. It's also, who's the best looking? It's also <laughs> <laughs> that should be a separate podcast. Um, it's also weird that we both are have soul patches right now. The nineties are back. I haven't actually. That would be something. Just on a quick, quick last aside. <laughs> so it feels like you haven't slept in a week. The nineties, the nineties are back generically or across the board, I would say, but yeah, but soul patches did not make no, the cut. No, no. Is that fair to say? No. And I, I don't think they will. What else do we have for the day, Adam? We have Vancouver real estate podcast.com. This yes. is our website where all things real estate related live. Head over to Vancouver real estate podcast.com for things like the live wire. This is our weekly mailer. We have the sold plan. We don't mention the sold plan very much. We have it. Well, the sold plan has never been more useful than right now in a market where a spotty market where stuff is turning over, but other stuff the is tier sitting. one stuff. You got to make your place yeah. a tier one as close to tier one as you can get. If you have a road running through your living room, you can't change that, but you can still get it ready for market. Exactly. We have the sold plan. We have VIP pre-sales in the residential and commercial space. We've got deal of the month. We have stats before anyone else. There's no reason why you shouldn't be on the live wire. We also have private client services. Yeah, Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free at your fingertips. It is the best way to search for real estate out there. And right now, more than ever is PCS useful because you're going to be able to see sold prices in real time. This is going to be telling you exactly what the market's doing. Are we on an upward trending market in, in the price band that you're monitoring? Are we balanced? Are we a falling market? This is the time where PCS is more valuable than ever. In line with that, yeah. one other thing. It allows you to cut through the hype, whatever the hype looks like in the mainstream press or on Twitter or the whatever noise. else. Because I'll tell you what, 
this market does not feel the way the headlines are right now. And it doesn't feel the way people are talking about it on Twitter. And you know what? Bypass that. It's Look crazy. at what's selling, how long it takes to sell and what it's selling for. It's easy. You don't need the third parties telling you what's going on. Totally. And that's the thing, right? Is, is, is it not crazy that our, t- our team in the last two weeks has sold a ton of real estate and all of our listings now have been absorbed. And one thing that we can do is we have the benefit of reaching out to other agents and knowing what's going on in the market. The market seems to be busy, especially in Vancouver, where we work. And if you don't have PCA, if you don't know that stuff's turning over, no. it's almost like you have to rely on uh, doom and gloom reporting, which uh, unfortunately is uh, not super accurate right at, now. At right now, it's definitely not the case. I feel like you read a headline and you think, what are they talking about? They're talking about a month ago. Yep. Anyway, if you want to talk about that or anything else, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got that Kokomo line info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Well, Adam, hopefully you're not here next week. Yeah, I've got to deliver a baby. You got to deliver a baby. Get out of here. And uh, we'll be back next week, regardless of whether Adam's here or not. Have a great week, guys, and uh, enjoy enjoy the weather. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. 